Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Our book club reading today, The Long Ride, is a story of a team of people who in 1989 traveled coast to coast on horseback to raise awareness about the plight of the world's rainforest, an issue that was not on the radar of most people at the time. In his second book about this historic cross-country journey, author Lucian Spataro offers an honest, inspiring comical but thought-provoking account of his attempt to bring attention to important environmental issues and the multiple challenges he faced along the way. The Long Ride is a beautiful fusion between a travelogue, advocacy, and photo journal. Lucian, thank you so much for joining us on today's World Footprints Radio Book Club. Thank you very much. I appreciate you inviting me to take a few minutes to talk to you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Now, I want to clarify, you traveled with a team, but you were the lone horseman on this journey. That's correct. We had a, we had a team of uh, five people on the ride, three horses and five uh, team members, and I was the only rider. We rode three horses, or I rode three horses, and the other team members helped along the way in terms of media and uh, fundraisers, and we had two horse people also that would take care of the horses in the evening and at night. So we had a, a, a strong team. It was a, it was a, it was a team effort. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you must have had a, a, a wonderful photographer um, as part of your team because the images contained within the pages of this book are extraordinary. Well, I appreciate that. Actually, we didn't. And so what we did, uh, it took about two and a half years to compile these images and this book um, because we had to go out to folks who had met along the way who had done some of these photos and sort of resurrect the relationships after 20 years. And we took these photos from people that we met along the way and newspapers, TV, that sort of thing, and had basically compiled them all. And we then had a, a graphic design um, person work with us to sort of um, pull them all together in one look and feel. So it was, it was quite a lot of work. Wow. You created uh, the long ride over 20 years uh, after your cross-country journey and after your initial account in your first book, why the second book, and why did it take you so long to do The Long Ride? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, the first book came out a couple years after the ride. I was in Ohio finishing a Ph.D., and a lot of the content for that first book was very academic. It was a lot of content about the actual environmental issues that we were writing to uh, bring attention to. And um, the book was attractive to people who are very academic in essence, and um, I used that book as part of my dissertation as well. Um, But the second book was more about the ride and the environment 20 years later, and we met a lot of folks who, after 20 years, said, you know, you should write a book about this 20 years later and tell us all what has happened, what's changed, how things are better, how things aren't better, and then bring it into the context of the ride again and use the ride again as a way to open that door up and bring those those uh, issues from the back burner to the front burner again. 
but the second book is is a book about the ride and the team. It's really a thank you to all those who helped along the way 20 years ago, and um, and then we bring in the environmental issues and talk about those as well 20 years later. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, tribute to the the team that you worked with, to to the people that supported you along the journey, uh, because it, it's a gorgeous coffee table book. And I must say, I was quite surprised when I um, received it. You're very generous in in, in sharing this uh, with us, and you know, with the World Footprints Radio Book Club. Um, as as a horsewoman myself, uh, I was really intrigued by your your planning process. Really, from the route you selected to the hurdles you jumped to obtain appropriate permissions, and even your selection of uh, the type of saddle. I, you know, my first question when I first heard about your journey is uh, was you know did he use a Western or an English saddle? And so um, yeah. you you spent. I mean, it wasn't just that that cut and dry. You you spent a lot of time, I think, um, researching. Uh, even the the equipment that you used. I mean, did you realize how much was going to be involved when you first came up with the idea of the long ride? Well, I think one of the reasons we were able to finish was because people didn't know that we couldn't finish. <laughs> so <I think> going <laughs> into the ride, going into the ride, we uh, we learned a lot. Prior to the ride itself, I trained for about a year and a half. The ride was actually five months, but I trained for about a year and a half on the city streets and highways around Tucson, Arizona. And I would ride these horses, uh, all three Almada horses, uh, anywhere from two to three hours or four hours a day on city streets and highways and, you know, across cattle guards and, and you name it, trying to bring them sort of up to speed and what kind of challenges they would encounter as horses. You know, but once we got into Los Angeles and we began to ride off the beach in L.A. through San Bernardino and the windmill farms, I mean, the L.A. Um, introduction to the ride was really kind of um, fortuitous because we did some really intense, difficult urban riding early on, and then we hit the long expanses of Arizona and New Mexico and Oklahoma and Texas, and um, we uh, had already gone through some of the big urban stuff initially. So it was a great um a great way of doing the ride from the horse's standpoint because they got to be indoctrinated relatively quickly in what they'd be encountering across the United States. But the whole idea about the ride was to bring attention to these various issues. So we had to ride to these big urban areas and have these mm-hmm. big fundraisers and get on the front page of hundreds of papers, and this was all intentional. But at the same time, it presented you know a nightmare for the riders, or for the rider and myself and the horses because riding through an urban area is, you know, dangerous and uh and so we learned quickly uh, about some of those dangers but it was an exciting ride we rode la to new york as the crow flies along the interstates and mm. uh great as the crow flies because we wanted to finish in five months and many of the other people who had done this ride had finished in, in a year 11 months 13 months because they sort of meandered north and south of that straight line uh-huh secondary roads and so i wanted to stay on the the main highway, four-lane highway, so I had to get permits to do that. But it was also the fastest route and brought us to the biggest urban areas, and so um, we decided Mm. to take that route. Mm -hmm. I I want to read a passage, um, actually a a quote uh, from you uh, that's on the back of your, your book. It is known that when people find themselves in a survival situation... 5% of the people will do the wrong thing, 
5% will do the right thing and 90% will do nothing at all. But in many cases, they all survive, thanks generally to those who did the right thing. The U.S., with 5% of the world's population, has a footprint that is more impactful than 80% of the rest of the world on the planet. Let's be that 5% that does the right thing, and if we do, we will be well on our way to turning this situation around. What inspired that quote? Well, you know, um, it's an interesting quote. I, the statistics uh, came to me in my research uh, from my, my doctorate when I was at Ohio uh, in the 90s after having completed the ride in 1989. And those stats were just overwhelming. It was really hard for me to believe that we could have, you know, 5%, 330 million people and impact, you know, our footprint being the biggest impact on the planet from a number of different perspectives. All the technologies that we produce are now being used around the world to, you know, gin up the economies of all the developing countries. And so there's all the technologies. We're still producing a lot of carbon. We're extracting a lot of carbon. You know, we drive in our consumption. Uh, mm-hmm. We we drive the, uh, the consumption on the planet by and large, the United States. So we're really the people that can set the example and do the right thing. And so, you know, we're also on a per capita income basis, you know, the largest consumers in the country and the world as well. So we have we have a lot of options and I think it all comes down to being informed and educated about how our consumption and what we do impacts the rest of the planet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest thing that people can take away from this book is that it's all about consumption, it's all about how we manage our lifestyles because when we consume Everybody's watching how we consume and emulating that behavior everywhere around the world. We're sort of setting the standard. You're listening to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and I've been talking to author Lucien Spataro about his book, The Long Ride. And I'm also joined by two listener reviewers. Um, I'm pleased to introduce Danielle Johnson, an environmental analyst from Richmond, Virginia. Thank you for joining us, Danielle. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And I'd also like to introduce Michael Williamson, an attorney from Alexandria, Virginia. Michael, welcome to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. Oh, well, thank you. Glad to be here. So, Danielle, as an environmental analyst, what were your thoughts about The Long Ride? When I saw the book, I was kind of excited to read it because, one, I love horses, and with my um, my background in environmental um, policy. This was, you know, kind of a good thing. And then just writing or reading through the book and um, just thinking about some of the topics that have come up. Um, you know, even though this was back in 1989, we still have the same issues going on today. One of the things that came to mind, I know you had the op- opposition um, going through, was it uh, Arizona or New Mexico, um, with the we don't like your type of people coming around here. Remark. <laughs> Did you face any um, opposition going through some of the coal mining um, communities in the east? Well, you know, it's it's interesting uh, that you asked that question. You know, at the time in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, and even in the 90s, you know, there's always been sort of a tension between uh, environmentalists and pro-business. I'm a, also a business guy and have started and run companies as well uh, in my past life, so I've been able to walk on both sides of the issue, but the um, that it's really hard to argue with the guys riding across the country on a white horse, 
it's it's very difficult for someone who you're talking with to say you're not committed, you're not passionate, and they at least give you an opportunity to listen to what you have to say. And I grew up in rural Ohio, so I grew up in the coal mining area of eastern Kentucky, northern, uh, southern Ohio, southern Pennsylvania, West Virginia, that whole area. So I'm really familiar with the coal mining issues and the strip mining issues and carbon extraction. So I could, um, you know, so argue all all ends of the spectrum there. And the purpose of coming across the U.S. on a horse was when you ride into a town like, you know, pick at Morgantown, West Virginia, or, you know, Athens, Ohio, uh, these folks, they'll listen because they want to first ask you, what are you doing on a white horse riding across <laughs> country? So it's an opportunity to talk to them, and they can kind of relate because, you know, who can argue with a guy who's riding a horse because we've all wanted to do, all wanted to do that in our past lives. Many of us have, you know, when we're growing up as, you know, horse people. So it's really a great opportunity. And so we didn't have, you know, situations come up often where people were really against what we were doing. Uh, the other uh, side of doing this is that at the time, in the 80s, people really didn't know what kind of impact that rainforest down in South America had on, you know, their, their lives in, you know, rural West Virginia or Oklahoma. So we took the opportunity to explain to them about, you know, how that rainforest and the loss of that rainforest could impact their agricultural lifestyle, say, in Oklahoma with no pollinators because those pollinators migrate to the rainforest in the summer or in the winter and they over winter over down there and they come back to pollinate crops in the, in the summertime. You lose the rainforest, you lose the pollinators, you lose the agricultural lifestyle that you've been, you know, growing up on over these last couple of decades. So mm. it really drove home the connectiveness between the rainforest and, and, and our lifestyle here in the United States. Michael, I, I want to pass the mic uh, to you. What was your impression about the book, and, and what are your questions and comments for Lucian? Sure. Yeah, thank you, uh, Tanya. Thank you, Dr. Taro, for letting me join the conversation. Um, I'd like to begin by just by saying that I'm also originally from Ohio and spent some time in Athens, so I really was pleasantly surprised so you began the book with you know, discussion of growing up in Ohio. And, That's great. Um, I, I want to ask him specifically about the, the blue hole. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, did you ever get back to um, to exploring that area? And, and No, I, I didn't get back to the blue hole, and I always wanted to go back and, and do that dive. Um, I mm-hmm. talk about that in the book. I've been a scuba diver and snorkeler, and had been a scuba instructor um, prior to my ride. So I thought I could I could pull that off, but I didn't quite do it. <laughs> so I didn't get back to the Blue Hole. It's a gorgeous area, though, and it's really stunning to know that there is a place you can dive that deep and that water is that clear and that visibility is like it is right there in Oklahoma. Yeah, it's really amazing. Well, uh, a follow-up question was was after your your injury, um, and, and the sponsors were, were made aware of that. Like I, I was just curious, like what was their impression or, or their response? As I was reading, I was you know asking myself like, what is he doing? You know, it sounds like he's putting the whole whole you know journey at jeopardy. Oh yeah, no, I don't. You know, well, I was in my late twenties, early thirties, so I I did some things that probably weren't the smartest things all the time. But I think having the experience as a snorkeling diver, I don't think it was too risky an endeavor. I probably pushed it a little further than I should have, but. Uh, you know, a uh, pressurization injury like the one that I got at the Blue Hole and in in prior in my scuba diving experience, 
those aren't the kinds of injuries that will put you out for a long time. You can ride and finish a ride with a, a blow in your drum and an oval window. It's not too bad an injury. Uh, although I have lost my hearing in my right ear, all but mm-hmm. about probably 20% of it over, over years now since then. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of a, de- a degenerative, you know, um, hearing loss issue now. Okay. Well, um, and then the, the other question is, um, did you actually make it to New York? Because it, it sounds like you, you ended in Maryland. Right. We didn't make it to New York. We, we uh, ended in Saltwater in Maryland. We decided to cap the ride in Maryland and uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we wanted to go saltwater to saltwater, and, uh, which we did, and that was one of our big objectives. We also wanted to um, you know, see as many folks as we could along the way. And the Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, event took a lot out of us. Uh, we had quite a lot of coverage in D.C., and, and we spent a lot of time moving through that area, Alexandria, Virginia, and D.C., and to the East Coast and, and along uh, Pennsylvania Avenue there. And we were just beat, uh, to be honest with you. It had been a long five months. And the extra couple hundred miles up into New York, we had the route cleared, but we had accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. And so the team sat down and we discussed it. And we couldn't get a whole lot more out of, you know, the extra couple hundred miles mm-hmm. because we'd gone saltwater, saltwater. And there was also an issue with the horses. Um, these horses had gone five months on the road, you know, thousands of miles and, and thousands of miles practicing before then. And we retired Sweet William in Oklahoma, so I was riding Sea Ruler and March Along, and um, they were worn out. And um, so we thought, you know, let's not push our luck. We've made it all the way to the East Coast. We got to the salt water. Horses are in good shape. Steam's alive. Everyone's safe. And now it's snowing. <laughs> so I think we'll just cap it right here, and we'll call it a day, and uh, that was it. Okay. And just the, the last question I had is, you know, throughout their book, there was some discussion about possibly setting a record, um, a single, a rider on a single horse. Um, was there an actual record set, and if so, how long did it, did it hold up? So that's a good question. Uh, we uh, did that ride. We were hoping to finish the ride with one horse, 3,000 miles and uh, we weren't able to do that. Uh, we had to retire uh, Sweet William uh, at 1,800 miles in Oklahoma, so we finished the ride with the two other horses. We did set the record for the longest distance covered in the shortest time frame on multiple horses. That record still stands, and no one has yet to beat that record. Um, the prior rides, interestingly enough, um, all started on the East Coast, riding west, so when I was doing the research for this particular ride, I always asked myself, why did they not finish, you know, quickly riding east to west versus, you know, west to east? And so we came to the conclusion uh, that, and I've interviewed most of those folks, when you leave from the east coast, you hit all those urban areas, and it really takes you a long time to get out of that urban environment into the more of the Midwest and the, and the, and the long stretches of open road we can make a lot of distance. And so people are constantly stopping you and talking with you, and you've got a lot of urban challenges, riding streetlights and roads and cattle guards and fences and who knows what. And uh, so you can't make a lot of good time off the East Coast. And so what happens is you have to start sort of late in the spring because it's cold also. It's snowing. So it's difficult to get out of the East Coast before May or June. And, uh, and then you're riding really slow, maybe 10, 15 miles a day, so you don't really get very far very quickly. 
And I thought, that's not going to work. We need to get across the United States for less than six months. And so we decided to ride west to east, get through L.A., and then have those long stretches of open road where we can ride 25, 30 miles a day. And then when you get sort of out of energy and you're running out of adrenaline, you start hitting the big urban areas, but you've got a lot of mileage under you. And so you sort of, you know, rainbowed into the east coast because you've got to go fast because it's getting cold and starting to snow. And uh, but you've got all the big mileage under your belt already. So we decided to ride west to east, and it was a it was a home run. The prior record was 11 months, and they sort of meandered north and south of that 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 uh, uh, strays or crow flies route that we took. And maybe they rode 4,000 miles, but they weren't able to do it as fast as we were. Hmm. So that record still stands. You're listening to the World Footprints Radio Book Club, and we're talking with author Lucian Spataro about his book, The Long Ride. And I'm also joined by listener reviewers Daniel Johnson and Michael Williamson. Daniel and Lucian, I want to, because you guys are the environmental, um, your, your industry is the environmental uh, uh, arena, I want to ask you both. Um, Lucian, in your book, you say that you know, although you raised a lot of awareness back in 1989 when you took this ride and environmental issues were the flavor of the month, um, there really still, you know, there's a lot left to do. And, Danielle, I heard you earlier comment that we are so far off from where we need to be. Why do you both think that is, despite all of the attention, um, albeit, you know, some time ago, uh, but, you know, it seems like the issue of the rainforest, um, the plight of the rainforest is, is, is coming up again. And, of course, um, you know, there's been uh, drives for uh, recycling and, and, you know, there seems to be still some awareness about the way we consume uh, our natural resources. But why do you both think that we're still so far off? Lucian, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, I, I think it. I think it has a lot to do with uh, the fact that people are less connected to the natural world than they've ever been in, in years past. You know, we grew up, you know, ourselves and and uh, and our kids uh, and our parents uh, off the farm in the agricultural economy, and now we're moving into. We've been in the high tech economy now for a couple of decades, but you know, by and large, the United States is the biggest consumer in the world per capita income consumption multiples and multiples of developing countries on a per capita basis um, is, you know, it's been 40 or 50 years now, 60 years now that we've been in this high-tech sort of production environment. But before that was all agriculture, we all had a connection with nature. And people today don't have a connection with nature. We don't know where the things that we eat come from, and we don't know how, they're, how they, get, they end up on our plate. And um, we, just, we just aren't simply connected to nature. We're not... Uh, natural organisms anymore. I think that has a lot to do with our, our inability to understand how important these natural systems are because we're not connected to them anymore. Mm. And, it, and, and I think that's a big, big issue. And we, with 330 million people, if we're not connected to nature and the rest of the world is consuming at a rate that's far less than ours, we're driving the boat. So um, I think personally myself, it's this fact that we're not connected to the natural systems anymore and we don't really understand how they provide us with the services they provide. Mm -hmm. And that's a big, big problem. 
And Danielle, I mean, you're in the uh, you're an environmental policy analyst. In your work, have you found that within the industry you work within, which I, I believe are um, military bases, is there a conscien- consciousness about our environment within your world? Yeah, actually, I've seen a change from when I started when I first started working um, in in the environmental field um, to today. Uh, you know, back in the 80s, there was a big environmental push. Um, there were a lot of changes made um, within the federal government, especially um, because at that time there was um, an exemption for federal facilities to comply with environmental regulations that other um, uh, institutions had to comply with. Um, so I came in during that time when there was this, this change going on, and you can see that, um, but there's still a lot that we have. There's still, we still have a long way to go. Um, one of the biggest things I see, I agree with Lucian, that, that there's a disconnect between us uh, people in our environment, and it's just basically our attitudes towards um towards the environment and the impact that we have on it. I mean, I can go down my street in Virginia. We have In Richmond area, we have voluntary, voluntary recycling. My neighbor refuses to uh, recycle, and I've talked to him several times, tried to encourage him, gave him a recycle bin, but he's like, as long as I have to pay for trash, you know, I'm just going to throw everything in the trash where two, three, four other people on the block will come out. I'll look out during our recycling day, and they'll have, you know, all their containers filled to the brim with recyclables. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is is um, the economics behind it. I mean, some people, um, like if you want to buy organic food versus something that was raised on a factory farm, it's going to cost more. And in this time... Um, in our economic cycle, it's hard for people to make that decision. Do I do I buy something that has less environment or less impact that's healthier for my family versus something that's cheaper for my family mm-hmm. and that I can afford to you know feed them? And you know, in the, in the last uh, minute or so that we have left, Michael, you and I are laymen. Well, I can't speak for you. I'm a lay, lay person when it comes to um, you know understanding the environmental issues. But um, did you have any? Were there any takeaways for you when, after reading this book? Well, I just just I guess an, an overall takeaway. Um, the the book left me with a sense of, of questioning myself, like what else can I do? In my own life, yeah, to to just be be more environmentally friendly. And and Lucian, real quickly, was that a part of the um, purpose for this book? Is that one of the takeaways that you want people to have after reading this book? Yeah, and and I I think that's one of, one of the key things that we all have an impact, and we all can do we do in different ways. And and as as Michael said and Daniel said, if we all do a little bit. It makes a huge impact because when we, the biggest consumers on the planet on a per capita basis, do a little bit, we do a lot. Mm-hmm. So just a little bit makes a huge impact from from that standpoint because we're the biggest user of these resources on the planet. So I think it's a really important thing uh, to sort of inculcate folks across the country about just do a little bit. Because a little bit, by us doing a little, it's huge. 
be the, become the 5%. The long exactly. ride takes you on an interesting emotional journey. You'll be inspired to act to protect our natural world. You'll live an incredible adventure vicariously through Lucian's words and accompanying photographs. Most importantly, the long ride will plant important seeds that, when watered, will grow a beautiful community garden. If you want to continue the journey of the long ride, we have a link to this book, The Long Ride, on our website at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and view our new discovery tours, including scheduled trips to China, Italy, Hawaii, and our new Galapagos journey. And follow us on your favorite social network. Thank you so much for joining us on this literary journey today, and many thanks to author Lucian Spataro for sharing his journey and for the work he is doing to protect our planet. Thank you also to our uh, panel of listener reviewers, Danielle Johnson and Michael Williamson, for helping to foster an inspiring conversation. And, of course, I must also thank the man behind the scenes, my co-host and husband, Ian Fitzpatrick. If you'd like to join World Footprints Book Club as a listener reviewer, please email us at bookclub at worldfootprints.com. George Martin once said, A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. So join us next time as we experience another life and a new world through a writer's pen on the next World Footprints Radio Book Club. Until we meet again... Happy reading. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved. Visit the Galapagos Islands, meet polar bears in Canada, sip wine in northern Italy, explore the Hawaiian Islands aboard a luxury yacht, and stand face-to-face with China's terracotta soldiers. Explore the world on a journey of a lifetime with World Footprints Discovery Tours. These tours give a unique view of the world in an intimate, small group setting with the freedom to immerse yourself in local culture, learn, and make new friends along the way. Book early and save. Visit worldfootprints.com and look for Discovery Tours to begin your next adventure today.